Exodus chapter 1. We're going to look at Exodus 1, verse 8, through Exodus 2, verse 10. I'm not going to read all that right now. We'll go through it uh, little by little. Last week, we just kind of did an introduction to the book uh, in the first seven verses. I encourage you, if you haven't heard that message, go back and listen to it. It'll be really help you kind of understand as we go through this book. Um, Josh L. says to me that uh, if we go by the pace of last week, it'll take three and a half years <laughs> to get through Exodus. So it, it will be going progressively faster, I promise. It won't be so bad. Exodus chapter 1. If you need a Bible, don't be embarrassed. Raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. It's really helpful if you have one. The phone right here. Where's the ushers? But right in the, the middle here, over there. Anyone else need one? Great. In the middle there, where Kelly is. Yeah. Great. Exodus chapter 1. I'm actually going to just read... Um, from verse 7 to verse 10, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it, from, of chapter 2 actually. Exodus 2, 7 to 10, and then we'll pray and get into it. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and he called and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she, was brought to Pharaoh, brought, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Father, we ask that you would take this somewhat familiar story, take this idea and this reality of the birth of, of Moses and how he was brought into Pharaoh's household. Take that story. And show us, Father, by your Holy Spirit, how it fits into our story. Or maybe I should say, Lord, how you're fitting us into your story. Lord, show us this. Uh, Father, we pray. I pray for all that are here today, Lord, that you would move by your Holy Spirit to show them that this indeed is echo of their story. How you are saving them the way you've saved your people Israel in the past. Father, we pray that you would bless our time together. We pray, Lord, that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says? Amen. All right. So this section about the birth of Moses is really less about the birth of a great man. And it's more about the great God behind the scenes. It really is. Exodus is really not so much about how God births a nation, but the God of that nation. It's for us to see what God is like. We see what God's doing in someone's life, and we see what God is like. And Exodus is just like this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see, in fact, it's interesting about the section we're going to look at today, because God's only mentioned a little bit, like directly mentioned a little bit. But we're going to see throughout the section God behind the scenes. We're going to see what God is doing. So first, the first part in, in chapters, chapter 1, verses 8 to 14, we're going to see how God used Pharaoh's fear to actually multiply God's people. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. 
Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Now, Israel was kind of part of a servant's class in Egypt. But as you remember from last week, we saw Israel went to Egypt as 70 people and God multiplied them to hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But what's going on here is Pharaoh mistrusts. He doesn't, he, he's suspicious of these people. And because he's suspicious of these people, he decides, I'm going to have to oppress these people. I, I, I'm not too sure we can trust these people, therefore I'm going to have to oppress this people because if I don't oppress this people, they may take over. And it's interesting because if you think about this, this has kind of taken place over a period of like three to 400 years and when, when Israel first goes into Egypt as just 70 people, the youngest son of Israel, Joseph, is there. And he's now second in charge of Egypt. And it was the wisdom that God gave Joseph that actually saved Egypt from famine, as well as, as, well as the rest of the world around them. And so, so they enjoyed this favor. Israel enjoyed this favor. They were given this really nice bit of land. And they enjoyed this favor of all... Oh, This is Joseph's people. This is the people whose God gave us favor and who helped save our nation as well as the nations around us. We we like Joseph's people. Years pass, decades pass, centuries pass. And then what do you have? Who are these people again? Oh, yeah, the Israelites. They're over there. They hang out with those shepherd people, and they kind of in that other land. They're all right, a little bit, I don't know, maybe a little dodgy, but they're, they're okay. They worship just one God. That's kind of odd. And, you know... Who knows? But then they get to a point where because they have a power, an influence, they say, oh, wait, Pharaoh says, these guys are actually dangerous. They might have had a good history, but I'm not even too sure if that applies anymore. And these people are now dangerous. See, this is important for us to understand because this is the scene that we find ourselves in right now. So so you you go back 200 years in this country, and Christianity was just the accepted norm. doesn't mean that everybody was Christian, obviously, but it was culturally Christian. A Christian ethic or morality was considered as the norm. And and so basically you had this happening where people kind of thought, well, that's the way we should be. Maybe we're not that way, but we should kind of be Christian. Fast forward to the middle of the 20th century, and things have changed. After two world wars... No longer is the culture so much Christian. But, you know, Christianity's nice. It's good for grandma. You know, Nan likes to go to church. And so it's good for her. And, you know, it, it's, it's not too bad. And it's harmless. And we fast forward to our day, and we're not harmless and irrelevant. We're now suspicious and dangerous. We're not too sure about those Christian people. They believe things and promote things that we don't think are good. I'm not sure about these people anymore. And we find ourselves in a very similar position as the ancient Israelites, where, where we're in this place where a mistrust can motivate oppression. In fact, what he says in verse 10, notice he says, let us deal shrewdly with them. Some translations say wisely. And we, <laughs> this is what we see often happening in our world, isn't it? That evil suspicion is dressed up as wisdom. But it's not really wisdom. Now, here's the thing that's really important for us to understand, because as I say this, the temptation for some of us is to think, okay, how can we get that influence back? 
Let's bring the, the, the clock back to a place where people go, no, Christians are good. Christians are, are what we want. They do good. Let's just kind of win that favor back, thinking that if we don't get back to that, we can't grow. If we don't get back to that, we can't actually help people know our God. But what we're going to see in the, in the book of Exodus is that's just opposite, the opposite of the truth. God is not kept back by people thinking that we can't be trusted. God's promises are not held back by people's suspicions. God is still at work. Look at verse 11. Therefore, what did, what did Pharaoh do? Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they, that's the Israelites, built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more the Israel was oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Do you see what's happening here? Pharaoh's plan is, let's force God's people into submission. They will bow down to what we want. They will do what our culture demands. We will make them happen. And they, guess what, had the power to do that. But guess what happened? As they did that, Israel grew. Israel spread. See, Pharaoh's plan was to force God's people into submission, but God's plan was to prove that his promise cannot be stopped. His promise that he had made to, to Israel as a nation could not be stopped. It would come to pass. Israel's affliction actually led to their multiplication. This is what we see throughout church history. I was talking to James earlier at the break, and, and I was saying to him, you know, <clears throat> I don't want things to get worse than they are. I really don't. I, I, don't want, I, I don't want to be more marginalized. I don't want to see, be seen even more as the grumpy old Christian man. I, I don't want that. But you know what? I'm convinced of, I'm convinced from the scripture that even if that happens, even if people look at us as Christians as just odd and dangerous and with suspicion, God can still use that to save many people, to bring people to know him. In fact, not just that, but God can use that difficulty to prepare us to worship. Look at verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Remember that phrase. And made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them, there's a phrase again, work as slaves. Now, I, I want you to notice a couple things by this, okay? Because I do want you to see that, that in God using Pharaoh's fear of Israel to multiply Israel and seeing this, I want you to recognize that this hard service was really going to prepare them for worship. But I first want you to recognize this was really hard service, that God is acknowledging through Moses that what Israel is going through was horrible. It was completely unjust. It was difficult. I can imagine the hundreds of thousands of Israelites getting to a place of wondering, okay, we know that God told Abram, our father, that we would be in Israel for 400 years as servants. We knew this was part of the deal. But Lord, can we just speed things up? Because this is really, really hard 
I, I don't know if, if any of you can even imagine, if any of us can even imagine what it would be like to, to, to be treated as a slave or what it would be like to see our children treated as slaves. Can we even imagine how horrible that would be, how difficult it would be, how hard it would be to keep believing in this God who promises? And this is, this is important because you notice in these two verses, I hope you notice how he talks about work and hard service and work and work and work again. And he's, the, Moses is trying to kind of draw this contrast for us to see that the way God intended work, before sin entered the world, God commanded that we as people work. Work is a good thing, but this work is not good. It's not good. And God says it's not good. He is not, listen, God is not ever devaluing the difficulty of our circumstances. He doesn't do that. He doesn't sit on his throne and go, you weak people, stop whining so much. Now, God will deal with complainers, but that's another study. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But he, listen, listen, he doesn't devalue how hard it is to be in the circumstance that his people are in right here. He doesn't devalue that. But also, I want you to notice, we, we, we highlighted that phrase, work as slaves. The reason is because this, it's used a couple chapters later in chapter 3. It's used as the same phrase to describe how God's people will serve him. Listen. God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign, the sign for you, God talking to Moses, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Same phrase, to serve as slaves. Now you might be thinking, oh, that's not very nice. Slavery? Worship is like slavery? No. No, no, no. Listen. What he's trying to say is this. What Pharaoh was doing was not what God intended by work in the beginning, and it's not what God intends by worship in the end. See, work is meant to be for us like worship. We are doing good for people who are made in God's image. That's worship. We're doing our work as unto him. That's worship. Work is meant to be as worship. This is what God's going to bring his people into. God is going to use this. Listen, he's going to use this time of them going under this, this horribly hard service to prepare them for what real worship is like. I remember a time when Sarah and I, well, well our whole family, we just had moved to London, and um, most of the time I was bored out of my mind because I went from working like 60 hours a week to twiddling my thumbs trying to find something to do with this teeny little church plant that we were involved in. So I'd go out in the street and try to talk to people and just anything. And we kind of fell into this ministry of, of these American university students at Kingston University who... Uh, one was a believer, and so she started coming to our church. And so we kind of adopted her to so come bring your laundry. We'll, we'll feed you and all that kind of stuff. And she ended up bringing with her like a dozen other students. And God does this really great thing over the, uh, the, the next several months where several of these students gave their life to Jesus. Some really great stories in this. And I remember in the kitchen was, was, I was in the kitchen with Sarah, and we're chopping vegetables or something. And I remember looking over to her and thinking, isn't it amazing we get to do this? I mean, we were, uh, we were busy. We were so broke. <laughs> How we ever were able to feed a dozen university students, I don't know. But we, we, were, we, it was just, we were blown away 
by how glorious it was to make Mexican food for a bunch of 20-year-olds and to pray every week with our kids, Lord, have, have them ask questions. And they would. We'd share Jesus with them. Was it hard work? Yes. Could it be stressful? Yes. But it was worship. It was what God was bringing us to. God used Pharaoh's fear to multiply his people. God will use the fact that we're in a world that doesn't want us anymore to actually cause us to be able to reach to them in a way that is worship to God. Look at verse 15. So God uses Pharaoh's fear to multiply his people. God also uses the midwife's fear to protect his people. Let's look at this bit. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt says to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other one Pua. Those names are important. We'll come back to them. He says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall, uh, she shall live. Now, interesting, because what's happening here is Pharaoh's going, okay, what's the biggest threat to us? It's, it would be in the context, if there's a war and the Hebrew men aren't on our side, we'll lose. That was the big threat they saw. So kill the boys, so they don't grow up to be men, but save the girls because we can exploit them later. This is what he's wanting to do. Pharaoh's fear of man, he was so afraid of what man could do to him, it, made, it led him to murder, to murder innocent children. And here's the truth. Pharaoh was afraid of Israel because Pharaoh didn't fear God. This is the way it works with all of us. It works with all of us this way. If we won't fear God, we will fear man. That's what will happen. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to be afraid if someone's threatening your life. Of course you should feel fear. God designed you to feel fear. That's what's going on. I'm also not saying you shouldn't feel fear when, when it feels like something's threatening your lifestyle or your family, like a, a crisis or a sickness. Of course, there's going to be that natural fear. But the issue is, the only thing that can cast that out is perfect love. And God connects his, the fear of him with perfect love. In fact, here's, here's the reality of the fear of God, the Bible says, this is a New Living Translation, Psalm 36.1 says this, Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts, they have no fear of God at all. If you think fearing God is seems some sort of antiquated idea, it's not. It's foundational for what it means to follow him. So Pharaoh's fear motivated murder, but the, but the midwife's fears actually protected life. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the, the, the male ch children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. It's kind of a backhanded compliment right there. Schmack. He says, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can come. And so God dealt, very, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, you've got to take this, what's happening in the whole context of Scripture. This is not God saying, go ahead and lie if it works. 
That's not the point here. God's not necessarily encouraging dishonesty. But listen, he is prioritizing faithfulness to him and his people. And we see this again throughout history. I think of Corey Ten Boom, who was a, a, a Christian woman in the Netherlands during World War II whose family were hiding Jews from the Nazis. So they had to make a false wall. That's a lie. They had to hide Jews and say they weren't there. That's a lie. And God has honored her greatly for this and her family because the gospel is honored in that. It's not about promoting dishonesty. It is about prioritizing faithfulness to God and his people. But it's also important to recognize here, listen, it's really important to recognize this is not just about saving babies. This text is often used to to talk about the pro-life movement and why abortion is wrong. And abortion is definitely wrong. And I really cannot see how we can call ourselves Jesus followers and not be pro-life. Now, we might need to add some other pro-life aspects to that, but that's something else I won't talk about today. But this is not just about saving babies. Listen, this is about protecting God's witness to the world. Because God had promised Abram, I'm going to bless all the world through your people. Your people who come from your loins, they're going to bless the whole world. And what's Pharaoh wanting to do? Destroy God's and these women fear God, therefore, they will not do it. Listen, they knew that Pharaoh could kill them easily, but they feared God more. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter uh, 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot cure the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on, of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, Jesus' point is, listen, why are you afraid of someone who doesn't have any ultimate judgment over you? Should not your fear be of God who is committed to you? And this is the fear of God that the midwives had. In fact, the, this fear that they had is what God rewarded them for. And he rewards them a relationship. Look again at verse 17. What does it say? But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt said. And then again, look at verse 21. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now this is not just the idea that they are women and they wanted to have babies because that's how women were good for back then. It's not just that. It's way bigger than that. It's about them having, listen, it's about them having an inheritance in Israel's future their children. They knew that. But also, listen, he's promised them also not just a reward in heaven. Hey, fear God. Now you'll die a horrible death, but fear God because there's reward in heaven. It wasn't just that. He says, now it's not just a reward in heaven, but also a closeness with God's people. If you've ever suffered greatly with someone else, not from someone else. We know we've all done that. I mean, you and someone else are in a situation where you've suffered greatly. You know the potential there's there to bring you close together, especially if you seek God through that suffering. There's something about this that when God has his people suffer and they suffer together, they, they come closer together. God rewards fearing him with relationship. 
Shifra, her name means sparkle. Pua, her name means glitter. Good baby names for you who are expecting. It, it's like God's saying, I want these, these are not the only two midwives for all of, of Israel, obviously. But this is like God saying, I want to highlight these two, and I want to highlight their names because they are shining bright for me. They're shining bright to the rest of Israel for me. Listen, this is how the scripture talks about the fear of the Lord. Listen to this. You, if you were following our Bible reading plan, you would have read this this, this week. Psalm 147.11 says, the Lord delights in those who fear him. Here's who, who, here's who fears God. Listen who put their hope in his unfailing love. Fearing God is not like, oh no, what's he going to do to me? Oh, I fear God. That's not the fear of God. Fear of God is, I don't care if people kill me because I know there's nothing greater than his unfailing love. And because he loves his people that way, I want to protect his people, I want to promote his people, I want to serve his people no matter what the cost. See, God's using their fear of him to bless all of his people, to protect all of his people. Lastly, starting in verse 120, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, God uses Pharaoh's command to actually rescue the rescuer. Look at this. Verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son that is born of the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile, but let every daughter live. Okay, the Hebrew midwives wouldn't do it, so I'm going to have my people do. Pharaoh gets his people to do what God's people would not do. If our goal as Christians is to just to try to protect or encourage a Christian ethos in our country so that we're pining for the old days when it used to be that way, if that's what we get, we're not having a biblical vision. Because God's vision for his people is not to protect a, a cultural ethos. Because here's the truth. If the enemy can't get us to compromise, he'll still destroy and kill and rip people off without us. So it's not just about stopping that. It's about showing how great God is. Look, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But now, in this situation, where all these male children are being cast into the Nile River... It says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's a deacon of the early church and was the first Christian martyr, he gives this gnarly old really long sermon in Acts chapter 7. And so that's a great sermon to get insight to what's happening here. Because here's what he says about Moses. Listen. Acts 7.20 says, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. So, so it's not just like Moses is born, and, and, and the mom says, it's a pretty baby. It'd be such a waste to cast him into the Nile. She has a sense from God that this is a beautiful child in God's eyes. God has something planned for this child. Hey, parents, don't we all feel that about our kids? And so she, she, what does she do? Verse, verse 3 says, So she could not hide, when she couldn't hide him any longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, 
and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, now some of you guys might recognize this language, okay? Because it's almost, he's, Moses here is using the same language that was used to describe the great flood and the ark that Noah built. Listen to this. God says to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, make yourself an ark, same exact word for basket. It's only used in these two places. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. In other words, the same way that God describes Noah's ark as an instrument of salvation for his people, he's now describing Moses' ark. Just like it wasn't Noah who was the deliverer, it was the ark God provided, it's not Moses' deliverer, it's the ark God provides. God's rescuing the rescuer. And I love this too because here we have this, this connection between, listen, this connection between an ark of deliverance and the faith of a mother. This huge, profound image and this simple, beautiful, profound, everyday thing. This is how God works. Look at verse 5. So what happens? His, Moses' little sister is, or big sister is watching what's going on, Right? And it says, verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river. This wouldn't just be, I'm dirty, I want a bath. This would be a, 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 a kind of religious ritual because they worship the Nile. So she's down there, right? And she's kind of worshiping the, the power of the Nile River. And it says, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. So she knew. Now, how did she know she's a Hebrew children? Because they're circumcised on the eighth day. That's how she knew. So she knew this is a Hebrew child. And so she, she's thinking, okay, I know what dad says. <laughs> I'm supposed to take it out of the basket and check in the river. And I wonder, we don't know for sure, but I wonder if she's thinking to herself, but we worship the Nile, and the Nile brought the baby to me. Maybe I'm supposed to keep this child. But what's amazing about this, listen, is that this is the pity of a princess and the protection of a rescuer, again, at the same time. This basic human thing, human compassion. And please, this is one of the things that's really important, especially as we get more marginalized, as we get more marginalized as Christians. Listen, our temptation, listen, our temptation is to vilify non-Christians. And it's a horrible thing to do. Because every person, whether they believe in Jesus or not, is made in the image of God, and they are capable of really good things. And we should not vilify them. And so here you have God using a pagan princess, probably in the midst of pagan worship, to protect his rescuer for all of God's people. Isn't that amazing? And I love the fact that this God-given compassion that every human being has as an image bearer, this God-given compassion overcomes the command of the world superpower at the time. I love it. What happens? We're almost done. Verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from, here, uh, from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And, and Pharaoh's daughter said, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. It's like a mom's dream come true. 
you have the hardest job in the world and no one pays you anything. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Isn't this amazing? Isn't it amazing? When, 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 when she's like, okay, the, the command of the superpower is chuck the baby in the river. She goes, no, I got to put it in this, this ark of salvation. I got to follow, I got to apply God's word the best I can and put this child in there and trust that God's going to protect this child. And God gives, doesn't just protect the child, God gives a child back to her. Man, you're praying for your kids. Any of you guys here, parents praying for your kids? Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. I love this too because what we have here is a great picture again, of the love of family and the purposes of God. This kind of beautiful everyday thing and this profound work that God's doing. Listen, for us as Jesus followers, it's the love of God, the love that God's given us in Christ and the love that we want to give him back in because of, of Christ. That love is what should motivate our actions. But listen, the love of family should frame those actions. When I say family, please don't just think I'm saying just nuclear family, mom, dad, and 2.5 kids. That's not what I'm saying. That's a beautiful thing. I think that's just part of God's design. But I'm talking about we as the household of faith. That as we have a family love that is, is or we have the love of God that, that, that God's given to us, that's shed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and the supernatural, transformative love, that that shows itself, it frames itself, in this family relationship. And we fall short of that. But don't we all want that? Man, don't we want that? Should we not pursue that by the power of God's Holy Spirit? Now, I love what's happening here as well. That this, that what happens is, is that as this, child surrendered to God's plan, she becomes the means, or he becomes the means of God's provision to save this people. I love this. We don't know what God does with the things that we let go of. We just don't know what God's going to do. I want to close with this. Moses' name. When, when, after he's weaned, this is probably, don't think months, this is probably years. There's a good chance Moses is three or four years old by the time he, he gets uh, into Pharaoh's house. So there's a, there's a real connection that's happened there, a real bonding that's happened there, as well as probably some pretty good discipleship about the God of Israel. But when Moses finally goes to Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's daughter names him, she names him Moses because I drew him out of the water. Here's what's interesting. The name in Egyptian and the name in Hebrew means similar parallel things. So, so that when, when, when we see this, he's drawn out. As, as she's probably thinking, the Nile's given us a special child. But in Hebrew, it means God's given us a special child. He, we, 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 he's the one who will draw us out of our bondage. I love this. And I love this because, listen... I believe the reason this is, this is significant, because I believe what God's wanting us to see here is that Moses has meaning to both Egyptians and Hebrews because God wants to save both. Because we're going to see when they finally leave Egypt, guess what they go with? They go with a mixed multitude. That means others than Hebrews. Other slaves from other nations, but other Egyptians, you probably said, I'd rather follow that God than the gods of Egypt. 
Listen. All of this points forward to Jesus because the superpowers in Jesus' day, like the superpower during the time of Moses' birth, the superpowers in Jesus' day, they crucified him because they considered him a threat. They thought he was a threat. But God was working behind the scenes in Jesus' day to bring salvation to the very people who crucified him. Listen to this. I'll close with this. Acts chapter 4. I'm reading from the New Living Translation again. It says, let me clearly state to all of you and to all people, all the people of Israel, that this man, that's this man that was healed, this man was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scripture where it says, the stone which the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Do you know why Peter preaches this on this day? Because the very people who had the power to try to shut down Jesus and his followers are the very people that God wants to save. Because God wants to save Jew and Gentile alike, Hebrew and Egyptian alike. God wants to save you. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what false gods you've worshipped. I don't even care what false idea about God brought you here today. Here's what we know from the scripture. God wants you for his own. And what he's provided through Jesus is way greater than what he even provided through Moses. The law came through Moses, the scripture says, but grace and truth came through Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, man, we really, really want to introduce you to him. Please, if you're still new to this Jesus stuff, please come and talk to us. I'm begging you. We want to answer your questions. You may have some things that, you're, that are making you, keeping you from putting your faith in him. Let's talk about those things. Maybe it's something you don't want to give up. Maybe it's an idea that you can't get your head around. Let's talk about these things. Because God really wants you to know him. A God of redemption wants you to know him. Amen? Father, we thank you that you want to know us. Man, Lord, you're so good that you would want to know us. Lord, thank you that you never waste our pain and you always keep your promise. Lord, the, the, the gods of this world make claims but can do nothing. The false gods of our imagination, the things that we treat as if they're God in our life, none of those things, none of those things can bring to pass what they promise. But you always keep your promises. And no matter how much those promises are fought against, you still keep your promise. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, right now, do that work of revelation in the hearts of those that need it most. Lord, maybe it's someone who's watching this later on. 
Maybe it's someone sitting here, but I just pray, Lord, you would work a work. And that everyone who hears this, Lord, would come to know you as the one and true living God who loves them and gave himself for them. Please, Lord, we commit these things to you. And we trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Bless you guys. Hope to see you uh, next week.